This is a podcast from The Red House, the former home of Benjamin Britten and Peter Piers. I'm Lucy Walker. Join me, colleagues and other guests for a monthly chat about all things Britain and Piers, plus music, culture, heritage in general and anything else that might come up. Hello and welcome to podcast number six from The Red House. Um, and as with the previous three podcasts, we are not broadcasting from The Red House because we're still at a time of, um, of lockdown. Uh, this is the middle of May 2020. Um, so I'm broadcasting from my house in rural Suffolk. Uh, but I'm delighted to be joined remotely by Russell Hepplewhite, uh, the composer Russell Hepplewhite. And uh, Russell, where are you? Um, I'm in my flat in London, as it happens. Nice. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about, uh, well, all sorts of things, I should imagine, but primarily um, Russell has been, has been composed the new set of Friday Afternoon songs, and the Friday Afternoons project is something we'll, we'll talk about shortly. But just to get us started and introduce ourselves to Russell, um, perhaps we could hear a little bit about your, your background. You're a composer, so... A first question is maybe just how did you come to be a composer? Um, I started learning the piano when I was six and um, really from some of my very earliest memories I suppose are of me actually trying to write music as opposed to just you know learning the dots on the page um, and that was it was always something that no, no one kind of talked to me about it but it was something that I was really fascinated in um, you know whether whether actually I could do something like that um, and and then I suppose later on I just picked that up I mean I, I, when I went to music school I was, I was very much going as a, a pianist rather than a composer but it was always something I'd really wanted to to, to tackle and so later on um, I studied it at, at the Royal College of Music and, and went from there. Great and uh, so it's actually your your composing <clears throat> trajectory is quite similar in some ways I mean don't let this pressure you in any way to Benjamin Britten's mm. as it happens <laughs> which is actually <laughs> looking at those dots on the page from quite an early age and thinking oh yeah I fancy having a go at that and uh, and actually making that link between what you're hearing and then actually how you can create those those patterns yourself that yeah, is, early. That think, is early. Yeah, yeah. yeah great so in terms of the the Friday afternoons project I'll just say a little bit about yeah. about that um Friday afternoons was originally a piece or a set of songs for children that Britain composed in the mid-1930s for his brother, who was a schoolmaster or a headteacher mm. at a school in Wales. Um, and they, the, the boys sang on a Friday afternoon and Britain provided, in a kind of nice brotherly gesture, uh, a set of songs um, with, with all different poets and written specifically for children with piano accompaniment. And they're mostly unison, but sometimes they go into a couple of couple of part harmonies or around or whatever. Um, yeah. And that was, so that was in the 30s. And then in the centenary year, Britain's 100th birthday, um, by happy chance, fell on a Friday afternoon. And so um, there was this big project, which was uh, run at, or music as was now, St. Malting's now part of... Um, part of Britain Piers Art that had a kind of international sing-along of Friday afternoons um, and from yeah. there launched an annual project every year to have 12 new is it always 12 I think it's always certainly a, a it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be no yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have to be but mm. I think it usually is 12. yeah so so a different a, a new group of songs um, from a new com from a new composer who they who they commission yeah. and then there's this website and this great resource every year is just growing mm. and growing and growing with a view to encouraging children to to sing in schools um, and your this year's Russell how did you how yes. did you come to be involved 
Um, I've known about the Friday Afternoons project for many years. I always thought it was absolutely staggering. You know, the the, the remit and, and the 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 reach that it has is just mm. incredible. I mean, these songs are sung all over the world by children of all ages. You know, from very very young children, you know, five six, right up to kind of teenagers and 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 young adults, which is which is phenomenal. Um, I suppose Snake Maltings uh, found out about me from a sort of connected angle. Um, I had uh, written um, four, uh, over, over the years, uh, from kind of 2012 on, I'd written four operas for young audiences for English touring opera. And these uh, were performed um, at Snake Maltings as one of the touring venues. So um, the, the different people at, at Snape got to know the pieces and, and got to know my music from that. And, and then Philippa Reeve approached me um, a couple of years ago and said, we'd love you to write the set for 2020. Mm. So that was how it, how it sort of all tied together. I'm, I'm intrigued what, about the children's operas, because um, mm. I've been doing a kind of daily project while we're in lockdown about all Britain's um, yeah. opus numbers and just being struck again how, how many uh, dramatised or semi-dramatised works he wrote f for children. So, and what, mm. what was the subject matter of your, of your children's operas? What were they about? The first one was called Like of the Space Dog, um, which <laughs> was based on the, the true story of sending the first dog into space. Yeah. Um, and of course she didn't survive mm. um, and, and we, we show all of that, you know, um, it's yeah. a children's opera, but it's very sad at the end, but uh, you know, we, we don't shy away from that. Um, there's a lot of fun along the way, but, but it's essentially about the space race between the Americans and the Russians, the politics of it, um, and kind of animal rights at the heart of it. So that was the wow. first one. Um, and then Shackleton's Cat, so um, Shackleton, his expedition, um, all the trials and tribulations of uh, the boat breaking up and uh, losing all his dogs and all that kind of stuff, and, and whether the, the men that he was on board with would, would survive um, and their incredible journey. Um, and then uh, I, uh, we did Borka, um, the goose with no feathers, which was uh, for, for the little ones, so that was for the infants. Um, so yeah, there's been a variety of them. But kind of animal-based. <laughs> that seems to yes. be the theme. <laughs> yes. It seems to be the theme, yes, yeah. and, and often the animals don't survive. Yes. Yeah. That's, okay, that's, that's an the, interesting that's take. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but your Friday afternoon songs are not about um, perishing animals as such um, that I can that I can see. Tell, no. tell us about those. And they, yes, and they're also not written to be performed necessarily for children. They are written for children to sing. I mean, you know, if the yeah. audience is full of children, then that's brilliant. But but you know, the operas were were very much sung by. Um, opera singers to audiences of children, so so it's quite a different world course, in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Friday afternoon songs. Uh, I mean, I should say at this stage um, just how incredibly thrilled I was to be able to work with Michael Rosen um, on, on on these songs. Um, uh, when Snake uh, came to me and said, "Who do you want to work with?" Um, he he would he was my number one choice. I didn't know him. I knew um, lots of his books, but uh, I didn't know him personally. So. Snake did the approach, and he said instantly, "Yes, I'd, I'd love to do that." Oh, that's so amazing. that was that was that was brilliant. Mm. Um, so when we started looking at, at ideas for for the set, I knew. I mean, Snape said you can write six songs as a minimum, but it can be twelve as a maximum. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write songs with Michael Rosen, let's mm -hmm. let's go all out and write twelve. You know, that was it. It was just a gift, really. 
Um, so we, we started from the premise of, well, you know, 12 as, a, as, a, as an interesting number, and, and we were talking about possibly setting uh, the 12 um, months of the year. Um, and, and that was sort of working for a while, but, but then Michael said, actually, let's just do something called everything. And so he came up with the title, and we, we've tried to, to write a set of songs literally about as much as we could manage. So there are four songs uh, for, the, for the elements, air, fire, air, fire earth and water. Um, there's a kind of scientific basis of life and being human. So we've got songs about discovery, songs about cells, atoms, human invention. And then there's songs that are kind of more uniquely related to what it means to be a, a human. So there's a song called Us, there's a song about life as a human, there's a song about language and one about movement, how we can move and why we move and, and what we do when we do move. So um, so we were trying, I guess, to be as educational as possible, but playful, fun, light, um, uh, as, as ever with, with Michael, you know, the words are incredibly witty. Um, they're quite simple, actually, in, in all the right ways and all the best ways, and incredibly settable, so unbelievably easy to set. You know, some of the songs took me, you know, 20 minutes to get the, the kind of basic ideas in place. Um, uh, so yeah, it was it was it was uh, it was a joy to work work with Michael. How that that's amazing the the speed. How what makes a settable poem in that sense? Um, I can <laughs> I can only really say when the words literally dance off the page, um, right. and they did with all twelve of the songs. And and what that means, I suppose, is um, trying to get into the mind of a child and thinking what will they find fun what will they enjoy what will they appreciate what will kind of inspire and fire up their imaginations and the thing that struck me incredibly quickly with uh, Michael's writing was rhythm mm. his words are all about rhythm um, and, and that's not necessarily just to do with rhyme but just you know the the internal meter the internal pulse incredibly strong the only times I suppose I, I struggled was when you know, the, the internal pulse that he, he was kind of uh, setting for the words differed from the, the time signature that I was trying to, to write in, and that happened a couple of times. Yeah. But what was fascinating about working with him was just how incredibly unprecious he was about the words. You know, um, I sort of nervously uh, made a couple of changes to the first song, you know, moved a couple of words or edited one word or something. And sent it back to him, you know, saying, if you don't like this, it's absolutely fine. You know, I can I can reset these and, and put them back exactly as as you wrote them. And he, he wrote straight back saying, do what you like with them. It's completely fine. I totally trust you. Um, and actually, uh, he probably shouldn't have said that because I, I, I did. <laughs> I did move, move more and more of the words around and, and cut and paste as, as, later on. But, you know, no, that, it was it was a, a real, real joy from that, that respect. It was just so incredibly easy um, to, to work with his words. But, but it's all about the rhythm. Fantastic. Well, and yeah, and also just um, I was just listening to, to them again this morning and some of the mm. some of the some of the sentences I was just, just thinking of cells and I've just got the the, um, the poem up in front of me now, which has got some quite yeah. when you say it leaps off the page and, and demands to be set sort of micrographia or some physiological yes. descriptions of minute bodies <laughs> made by magnifying glasses with observations and inquiries thereupon a bestseller. Yeah. It's so good. And then that, to actually sort of fit that into your um, into your musical 
structure and ha and and, mm. and and keep it with consistent within with the language that you've created. I thought it was really impressive and really fun. I particularly like that one. Um, Thank you. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's worth saying that that um, although they 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 do differ in in terms of difficulty, and and you know some of the songs are more difficult than others. I tried to um, set the songs so that they can be approached by any any child at any primary school yeah. anywhere pretty much um you know snape said to me it's totally fine if you want to have some that are very very difficult and that would only necessarily be sung by you know you know your, your national youth choirs or london youth choir or, or whoever um uh and, and there are a few songs in the, in the Friday Afternoon Song Bank that, that really specifically target only the kind of very trained choirs, but but they are few and far between. And, and with my set, I very much wanted to make sure that these were incredibly accessible and approachable. And I suppose that was the only thing that I felt working with Michael. Um, I felt that I needed to do justice to his army of young fans out there mm. um, because you know you, I road tested some of these songs in, in a few primary schools as I was as I was writing them and you mentioned Michael's name and all the kids know who he is and they can all mention <laughs> at least one or two of his books and that it, it struck me just how big a responsibility that was to carry because I thought if I get this wrong yeah. and I, I set a load of songs that are unsingable or actually you know, year five in a, a a school in Norwich, they don't like, it doesn't work for them, it's too difficult or it's too angular or it's not worth, they don't feel it's worth them putting in the effort to learn it. Mm. Actually, I'm going to kind of shoot myself in the foot here mm. because mm. it'll lead to disappointment and and a lack of motivation. And I thought yeah. that is not something I can, can do. Yeah. Um, so there are some songs, and you mentioned Cells, which I think is probably mm. one of the most difficult ones. Mm. Uh, but But... But by and large, they are to, to be sung by everyone. And and what I really wanted to do was write a set of 12 songs that if there was a school or a class or a group of children or just a choir who were really interested and inspired by one or two of the songs, if they wanted to, they could tackle all 12, knowing that, you know, although there will be some challenges along the way, they can manage all 12 yeah. and that they can do the full 12, you know, the full set of 12. That was yeah. That was something I wanted to... Uh, to achieve well I think that that's that it seems to me that even within the difficult ones that that there mm. are very helpful anchor points so even when there's been some perhaps quite difficult stuff in terms of you know perhaps yeah. um, synchronizing with the piano part or whatever there's a section mm. of of um, sort of monotone singing so just all on the same note yeah or a simple descending scale or something so even if it's been quite you can you think oh well I know where I am there and then you can work that's out right. from it and so I mean presumably that that technique has come from your experience of having worked with with children yourself um which are you yes. telling me sort of um be before this that you you were a primary school teacher for a while and and so that that's something yeah. that you you have a sense of of what works and actually what is satisfying for children event of of with no prior perhaps particular musical experience to um how, how they can actually go about it Yes, that's right. I mean, I was um, when, when I left um, music college. One of the first things I did was was become a class music teacher, mm. and I did that for a number of years uh, part time. And, and it was very, very hard work, but it was some of the most rewarding stuff that I've ever done. Mm. Um, and what it enabled me to do was was really get inside the, the minds of, of children and work out what was inspiring to them and why. Mm. Um, and it's not always what you think. 
um, sometimes you think you know the most difficult stuff, the most angular stuff, they're not going to like. But if there's a way in, if there's a particular rhyme they love, or they think that bit's funny or witty, they'll go for it, and mm -hmm. they will make that extra leap, um, and they will challenge themselves. Uh, so, so that that's what that enabled me to do. Oh, that's great. So that that's actually kind of, um, yeah. That, I mean, that that seems to me to to be not thinking. We I better make this sort of super simple, um, mm. or because then it just becomes bland and and it becomes yeah. not. Um, you you don't you don't get excited about actually learning something mm. and you or, or kind of as you say challenging yourself and almost competing with yourself to sort of get this tongue twister or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, do, what's um. I'm curious about sort of children's voices. Is the mm. is the vocal range? So is there? Do you have to sort of think about? You presumably have to think about that. So not going not going too high, not going too low, or what? What, yes. how, what are your parameters there? <laughs> well, <laughs> when you're writing for a, a trained youth choir, as mm. I have done quite quite a quite a lot, you, you can imagine they've got a range of a good octave and a half. So, you know. A, yeah. Uh, roughly from a kind of middle C up to a, a G an octave um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that um, but actually uh, in 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 an average primary school kids don't usually like to go much beyond uh, an octave mm -hmm. um, that you can push them to kind of a, 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 a C above middle C the D above that maybe an E occasionally but it can be a push mm -hmm. and so actually yes there are there were limitations I mean I kept broadly speaking to a range of an octave maybe a ninth that kind of stuff but yeah quite restricted um in that respect but you know as with everything in composition the more restrictions you have in some areas the more creative freedoms you have in other ways to be inventive mm. um i don't look at anything like that as a kind of um a, a kind of curtailing of creativity mm. um you just set the parameters to begin with and say this is what i'm trying to achieve and how much fun and how much colour and, and playfulness can I put into this within this context? Yeah. So yes, it, there is there is a, a parameter there, but it's not something that, that worried me. No. Oh well, that's interesting. Yeah, I like I like those. I always like hearing those stories about, um, you know, that you've got a sort of really bizarre group of musicians you have to write for, and then and then that means that you write something you would not normally have written because you wouldn't normally. If, you know, if you had had your choice, you would perhaps choose that those restrictions. But when when you, when you have them, yeah, exactly. combinations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's good. Um, just I'm just thinking back to uh, again the original Britain model and the mm. time that he was writing all his pieces for children. So Friday afternoons in the 30s, and then St, St. Nicholas in the 40s, mm. Noah's Flood in the 50s, and there was Little Sweep as well. That he was making a certain set of assumptions about um, the standard of musicianship in schools that he could mm. perhaps rely on to some degree that especially for Noah's Flood that kids would be playing the record as well and we co covered this yeah. a couple of podcasts ago when I was talking to Katie Hamilton um, and that actually that might not be the case now gen broadly speaking in schools that it's mm. not so much a, it's not so much a given any longer um, do you find that that's the case? Yes, I mean, I, I think uh, schools have got so many different things they're trying to cover. There's so mm. much in the national curriculum. There's, they're, they're under so much pressure, um, you know, with Ofsted and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think to, to be fair to, to schools, although I think 
by and large, music has unfortunately become marginalised mm. to a to a greater or lesser extent. I think they are under so much pressure. They've got so much ground to cover. They've mm. got so many exams to to get kids through. Sadly, um, that that music has, I think, fallen a little to the the wayside. Mm. But um, this is where something like Friday Afternoons is so incredibly helpful mm. um, because of the vast resources that are powered into these songs, you know, from the backing tracks, all the different difficulty levels, the signed videos, the braille resources, the fact that you can download lyric sheets or the full piano score, there's teaching resources, you know, you, uh, there are um, on, online, there are actually videos where if there's no teacher who's actually uh, feels uh, confident enough to teach uh, one of these songs because they feel they don't have the, the musical um, know-how, then actually they can just, you know, go to the, the Friday Afternoons website. There is uh, a component called Charanga, which literally is a whole lesson there, there and then. They just mm -hmm. literally need to put it on a on a screen, and it will teach the children a whole song. Mm -hmm. So that is where Friday Afternoons is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, but but yes, I, I I think the point still stands that that music has drifted uh, mm -hmm. somewhat in in the kind of um, mainstream schools, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I think to an extent that is uh, less um, uh, in, in private schools, uh, you know, from yeah. what I observe, there is more space and more time in private schools for, 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 for music making. Um, but, but yeah, by and large, it, it, it's, it's been moved across a bit. Yes, yes, and that seems, um, it seems a shame, but I think maybe, you know, as you say, with, with mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, fully understand. I fully understand the pressures um, involved, but I also at the same time there seems to be a real awareness and appreciation that singing, in particular, but listening to music, learning about music, it, just sitting in a room yeah. listening to it is actually really good for you. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that it, I, hopefully, you know, with, with a bit, a bit more of a push for these kind of projects, we it can it can become just something that is that is seen as for everybody because that's the other thing classical music does Absolutely. suffer a bit from that kind of well, it's not it's not for us i mean the, my colleague um joe at the red house who who works with children in mm. schools and obviously in a normal circumstance um has school groups coming through the red house all the time and just making it just a kind of normal thing to go and hear about a composer mm. and hear his music and see where he lived and you know, especially for Suffolk schools, having a kind of sense of pride, yeah. you know, in the local boy and that kind of thing. And that's that's really, really feels to us really important. And, you know, again, it, something that Britain would have presumably applauded as well. And yes, be, I mean, yeah. it, it's a really interesting point. But I think that idea of classical music um, sort of suffering uh, that kind of... Um, uh, if there's any label or, or baggage attached to it, kind of not mm -hmm. being for everyone, that seems to be something that comes later and seems to uh, be uh, drawn to to classical yeah. music later. I think actually children, they, uh, you know, particularly younger ones, primary schools, they don't really know or care whether it's cool or not, you know, um, and 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 music really, really is for absolutely everybody. And I think if you just you just say it to them then it becomes cool and then we can change things later later on yeah. i mean i suppose one thing that has struck me i've written a lot of music i would say at least half my output has been either for children to perform or for children to uh, to watch mm. to listen to um and i think something that struck me is that because i spent a lot of time writing music for them to listen to um 
I've learnt that actually you you don't dumb down for children. You no. don't patronise them. You don't write down for them, um, because they will tolerate. If you tell it, if you tell a story in the right way in an opera, for example, they will follow it. They mm. will enjoy it. They will appreciate it, and they won't worry about levels of dissonance and whether this is difficult or angular or anything. If you if you say it if you speak to them in the right way they'll buy it and actually the, the the interesting thing is they are the very best of critics because they show you immediately whether they're buying what you're doing yeah. you know they, they they just shuffle if they're bored they turn around and talk to their neighbour you know and and that's brilliant because you suddenly go yeah they're lost then they're not interested in this scene slow I can't write that music again for the next one you know um, so all that sort of stuff is in there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so they haven't developed that kind of polite kind of, oh, yeah, well, of course it was marvellous. <laughs> so they're just like, yeah. you know, bored now. There's, there's an, yeah. That's right, there's no veneer with yeah. them. What, what, you know, what, what you see is what you get. Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, so there we are. <laughs> no, so that's, that's interesting that, yeah, to sort of get them before their judgment starts forming or, or other associations about classical music take hold. Mm. I mean, I remember a former colleague of mine, again, at the Red House, was playing just kind of almost out of it as a sort of experiment of school groups and really far out bits of contemporary music and some, some of the sort of um, more uncomfortable reaches of, of Britain's mm. repertoire that are seen as, as difficult pieces, like some bits yeah. of his church parables. And they were just sort of like, oh, you know, it's great. It was just, it was just a different sound world than something else. And that, again, had no preconceived ideas about it and no, therefore no judgment. Um, so, yeah, that was, exactly. quite, that was quite interesting. Yeah. I think the the point there is that um, you know children when they're in school and when they're you know you know they're young people they're used to this idea of everything around them being something they can learn from and mm. learn to appreciate. So actually, you know, it just falls within what they're doing every day. You know, you just present something to them, they learn from it and they enjoy it and they can be inspired by it. So we should be very very unafraid about presenting new music or what might be termed difficult music to, to kids you know they, they really don't care <laughs> <laughs> and what um what music do you listen to what what composers or other kinds of music are you particularly drawn to um i've been uh i've always listened to um 20th century composers actually mm. because the 20th century was the most phenomenal and inspiring time um, you know just this opening up of different styles across the world you know this yeah. kind of anything goes sort of um, idea just incredible this new um, this idea of new styles and finding new paths uh, has always has always inspired me so um, you know everyone from Bartok, Copeland, Britain, um, Schoenberg you, you know, through to um, uh, people like John Adams, uh, even people Philip Glass, um, Louis Andreessen, uh, 20th century and 21st century composers. Yeah. Um, having said all that, I find it very unhelpful to listen to music when I'm very much buried in a project that I'm mm. writing, um, because what if, if I'm particularly enjoying a piece of music, um, it starts to something of it starts to appear in what I'm writing. Yeah, uh, that's just just a problem. So <laughs> I try to avoid listening to too much, actually, when I'm you know very deep in a project. Yeah. Uh, but around the edges of a project, I will start listening to stuff again. Yeah. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm very much a 20th century um, fan, and it, and it is that at the time where the, the harmonic mm. expansion began, and then sort of almost like anything goes, and it just started to yes. accelerate all the way through the 20th. Yeah, I'm very drawn to that as well. I made a very sweeping statement in mm. a couple of podcasts ago that I didn't li- ever listen to anything from the 18th century. <laughs> I feel quite bad about that now, <laughs> but it, it's broadly true. Um, when I sort of choose to sit down and listen to something, it's nearly always from the 20th century. Yes. Um, yes. So speaking, actually, this is something um, I've been asking towards the end of each uh, podcast is what what is yeah. the piece of music that you've or more than one that you've been listening to uh, recently? Because we can add to our mm. podcast playlist. Mm. Um, the piece of music that I've been listening to most recently was Appalachian Spring by Copeland. Nice. Um, yeah. The thing I love about it is how simple it is. And the scoring, the orchestration mm. is totally magical. Um, it's something that I'm, I spend a huge amount of my own time thinking about how to score something, how to mm. orchestrate it. Um, you know, the different, uh, the different context you can give just a few notes by placing it in the flute as opposed to the oboe, mm. the different colors, the different textures that you can add. Um, I always think to myself that actually, you know, you can have the very most incredible piece of music, but it's not orchestrated brilliantly it'll fall flat Hmm. and actually I also think the opposite that sometimes you can have music that it's all right you know it's not the greatest music in the world but if you score it well it can go much further Um, and so actually uh, orchestrating is something that that is so important that I spent a lot of time thinking about that And what what do you is it an instinctive thing when you're composing for orchestra yourself, or is it is it? Oh, I know that mm. effect works well in Copeland or Bartok or whoever. Is or is it mm. is it just something that have, have you been quite experimental with instrument combinations, or how, how does it work for you? A lot of what I've written has been for small combinations. You know the operas that I wrote for ETO, mm. they were always for three or four players. I think the most I got with, for one of them was five, five players. Mm. And they were always a very random group of instruments <laughs> that I, I was asked to, 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 yeah. to compose for, for, for various reasons. And so I spent a lot of time thinking, well, how do I make a double bass and a piccolo work, mm. <laughs> you know, in, the, in that context? Um, and so a lot of it was kind of working out um, tricks and, and, and kind of doubling effects and... and just watching and witnessing what effect that has in the actual performance mm. but the thing that i absolutely adore about orchestration is that it's it's like a puzzle you know it's like um it's like a jigsaw you're placing pieces around the board and you're thinking actually if i move that one there what does that now look like mm. and, and if i just move that and there's so many billions of combinations of orchestrating just a few notes mm. you know um that, that actually it, it changes everything mm. Um, but it's, the, it's also the thing that I probably most enjoy, actually, once I've written the piece, or even sometimes I orchestrate it, I go, that idea of uh, changing everything by the way yeah. I say things, um, it's, it's very important to me. Oh, that's great. It's reminding me a lot of, um, I was doing a thing last night, and it was a kind of live streamed thing, talking mm. about Britain's film music um, that he wrote for the GPO. Mm. And that was kind of, he would turn up and say, right, I want 25 seconds of music. You've got a clarinet and a, some coconut shells and a penny whistle. Off you go. You know, and he, he would yeah. just have to do it. Yeah. Um, and it was a similar sort of, um, well, <laughs> perhaps slightly more pressured than your, your setup, but with a similarly kind of having to respond creatively to what you're given, you know, in a kind of ready, mm. steady, cook kind of 
yeah. principle. You know, whatever you've got, you have to make it work. Um, I think yeah. it's also interesting to. I mean, I do though. I do love the orchestra. It actually doesn't always. Um, it doesn't always inspire me the way it's right. used. Um, I'm actually drawn to kind of chamber orchestra uh, mm. a lot more, smaller scale things where you, where there's a real transparency to a score and where you can hear right through the music and work out what everyone's doing. Um, I, I, to an extent, I sometimes lose lose interest when I can't mm. hear what everybody's doing in a piece of music. You know, when the, it's just mm. a huge... Like wall of sound. It might be an amazing... Yeah. It, it, exactly. It might be yeah. an incredible wall of sound, but, but, but if I can't hear and follow where you know what the violas are doing what the cellos are doing then it loses uh, some interest to me um well i just uh because i, I tend to weigh in with my own musical um what mm. i've been listening to as well and actually it is a 20th century piece and um uh, mm. it's i was doing a discovery session well it was supposed to be a live one but i ended up recording it um on poulenc's love white men um so this oh, yeah. is opera down the phone and i absolutely love it i mean i did mm. my phd on yeah. Poulenc's operas and I, i'm obsessed with them but um that has got some quite distinctive uh orchestral moments in it not least the xylophone as a telephone um mm. and i just think it's absolutely fabulous um and also i've been listening to somebody somebody put on twitter uh, Twitter, um, an amazing live recording of Stevie Wonder's Superstition, and I've just been listening to that mm -hmm. a lot as well. <laughs> um, great. Well, we'll add Appalachian Spring to our Spotify playlist. Uh, we'll see also whether I wonder if we can include some of your um, music in this to illustrate what we're talking about. Well, they're not out yet, mm. um, but having said that, any day, I think it may even be tomorrow, the London Youth Choir okay. um, have done this webcam recording of one of the songs uh, called Earth, yeah. and that might be brilliant to use. Um, okay. Kind of 60, 70 children all singing from their living rooms. <laughs> um, oh, fun. I, I think that would be really tremendous if you were able to use that.
great. Well, that's wonderful to hear from you, Russell. I've been really fascinating hearing about your process uh, in writing these songs and also um, your general compositional career and your other works. So thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank from, you, Angie. It's been a real London. pleasure. Great. And um, <laughs> good luck with the with the launch of the, the Friday Afternoon Songs, which is coming very soon. And um, yeah. they will be another Red House podcast at some point from um, probably rural Suffolk uh, in the next few weeks. But bye for now.